Love is dot dot dot. Uh, how would you go about finishing that sentence? Love is what? A many splendid thing. Uh, that's what the Oscar-winning movie reckoned. Love is all you need. That's what the Beatles sung. Love is a battlefield. That's what another singer, Pat Benatar, reckoned. Mark Twain wrote that love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. Always had a way with the word. That's not bad. How about this one? Love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. That's deep, as you would expect from Aristotle. Love is friendship on fire. I like that one. Jeremy Taylor, he's an Anglican minister in the 1600s. He came up with that. Love is... Well, what do you reckon? This morning as we come to the end of Song of Songs, what's going to happen is that God is effectively going to give us his version of what love is. Because here at the end of the book, we've actually reached a section which is a little bit different from everything else that we've been reading over the past few weeks. Because up until now, most of the song has been about two lovers serenading each other. And it's, all a, it's been all about their love for each other, their passion for each other, their desire for each other. But here at the end, the song takes a bit of a different focus on love in general rather than these two lovers in particular. I mean, up until now, the only real reflection on the general nature of love has been that repeated chorus that we've heard time and time again about do not awaken or arouse in love too soon. At the end of every section, we've discovered those exact same words, that exact same warning. But here at the end of the book, that warning is almost conspicuous by its absence. It's as if after all the erotic descriptions and the almost uncontrollable longings of particularly last week, it's as if now at the end of a book a much gentler, calmer, contemplative mood blows through the text, especially at verse 6, which is the verse that really seems to stand out from the rest here because it is with verse 6 that we finally get a considered reflection about just what love is generally and it's not a warning anymore it's not don't do this with love it's more positive than that it's more along the lines of look here is what love is after all we've read after all that we've heard our lovers say to each other here's what it boils down to here's what being in love involves And as such, I think we get a bit of an insight into how God would finish the sentence, love is this. And I think the first thing God would want to say is that love is a seal over your heart, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother conceived you, there she who who was in labour gave you birth. Now it's a lovely opening scene to this last little section. Uh, That question in verse 5, who is this coming up from the desert, that exact same question was asked in chapter 3, verse 6, and back there the answer was it was Solomon coming in great procession for his wedding. Now, however, the question is again asked, but it seems to be after the wedding. It sounds as if the big day has come and gone. The the lovemaking that last week our lovers so passionately longed for, the consummation of their love is now over. And so now we see our lovers walking together, arm in arm, perfectly at ease in each other's company, happily reminiscing. 
Under the apple tree, I rouse you. Look, there's the place where we first fell in love. And look, over there is where your mother conceived you. There's the old family home where you were born. Every now and then when we're in Sydney, Sue and I will drive past the unit that we first lived in when we were married. It's not that far from where Flick is at, at university now. And so this year, there's been a few times where we've taken the kids past and pointed it out and told them all about, well, that's where mum and dad, that's where we first live. And they sort of sit in the back and they roll their eyes. Uh, that's what's happening here in the text. It's, it's quite telling. It's telling because after all that erotic description that we heard last week, it's telling that the song does not end, it does not end in a torrid sex scene. It ends with two people tenderly sharing a life together. And it's showing us that being in love is much more than making love. Being in love is relationship. It's the sort of relationship that's portrayed here. A relationship of undying commitment. Verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now back in the ancient Near East, seals were often pieces of stone, pieces of metal that would be inscribed with someone's personalised markings, almost like their autograph was placed on it. It was a symbol of permanent ownership. And here she is saying, place me like a seal over your heart. In other words, bind me permanently to your life. Inscribe me irreversibly on your heart. Hold me close and pledge to never, ever, ever let me go. And friends, that's love, according to God. Yes, it's passionate, as we have repeatedly seen, but it's more than that. It's a binding commitment. It's a lasting commitment to be together with someone because it's exactly within that sort of security that the passion of love can be most fully enjoyed. See, look what it goes on to say in verse 6. Notice the connections. Place me like a seal over your heart, a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. In other words, because love is so powerful, make sure that you're enjoying it in a safe, secure, sealed relationship. Now, I think that's what is being said in that really weird sort of interchange at verse 8. We have a young sister her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she's spoken of? If she's a wall, we'll build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we'll close her with panels of cedar. Unnamed brothers here seem to be thinking about how best to protect their sister's virginity. She's only young. How can they protect her? How can they care for her? They pretty much answer their own question in verse 9. If she's a wall, if she herself is resisting men, they'll support her in that. They'll encourage her in that. They'll be towers. They'll look out for her as well. If she's a door and is open to men, even though she's way too young, then they're going to go one step further. They're going to enclose her so as to protect her. Now, it sort of seems a random sort of thing to come out with at this point. Maybe not. Remember, all the way through the song, we've heard that chorus addressed to the daughters of Jerusalem to not rush into love. Well, maybe here's now the flip side. Here are the brothers of those daughters saying how they will help their sisters to not rush into love. And in verse 10, our girl lover basically agrees that that's good. Verse 10, I am a wall, my breasts are like towers. Thus, I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. She see. 
See, she now is of age, her breasts have developed, and she's been a wall. She didn't, she took a time, she resisted men, she didn't rush into love, and because of that, thus, I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Contentment's a very strong word there. It's actually the word shalom, the word for peace. In other words, because she didn't rush love, she has brought fulfilment and wholeness. She's come into a relationship of extraordinary contentment, which she now goes on to express by comparing herself to Solomon. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard in Bahamun. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver, but my own vineyard is mine to give. A thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon. Now, Solomon's vineyard is probably a reference to his harem. We noticed last week the guy had 700 wives. Paradoxically, the more wives he had, the less deeply personal and fulfilling they became to him. He had to hire tenants. He had to hire carers to look after them. Our beloved, however, declares in verse 12 that she has only one lover and her happiness is complete. The NIV doesn't make that all that clear. The the ESV, if you've got one of those, that's a better translation. ESV reads, verse 12, My vineyard, my very own, is before me. See, she's saying, unlike Solomon with his hundreds, she has her one. She has her very own, and that's enough. That's plenty. Verse 12, the thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon. In other words, you can keep your money, you can keep the fame, you can have the harem. My contentment is with the one, my very own. And the inference of the text is that even greater commitment, in fact, comes from just having the one. That when you place the one as a seal over your heart, you will be as happy and as fulfilled as anyone, more so. And survey after survey after survey shows that. Way back in the 70s, the survey by Red Book magazine discovered what, what they thought was an amazing fact. They discovered that religious people actually have significantly higher sexual satisfaction than non-religious people. A recent survey by the University of Chicago has discovered exactly the same result, that effectively women who go to church have a better sex life than women who read Cleo. In his book, How to Make Bad Relationships Better, Les Perot quotes research to say that people who have only ever had the one sexual partner in their life actually have the most satisfying sex life. In 1992, a survey by Christianity Today magazine found that people who have multiple sexual partners, who have had multiple sexual partners, tend to be significantly less happy in marriage and more likely to commit adultery. Friends, let's not be fooled by the movies and the TV. The research is in. Being in love and making love actually work best within an exclusive, binding relationship. Well, God's not surprised. For love is a seal over your heart. It's also as strong as death. Verse 6 again, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. Deal with this point fairly briefly because in many ways it's pulling together the threads of what we've already noticed in the book. That, that, that the fierce, almost indestructible power of love, that love is equal to all its challenges, that, that you have about as much hope as turning love off 
as escaping from the grave. I was reading in the paper this week about an elderly couple in Johannesburg who came home from shopping and while he was getting the groceries out of the back of the car, his wife went into the house and, and uh, disturbed a robber in the kitchen. Out at the car, this 80-year-old man heard his wife fighting with the intruder and without thinking, he immediately rushed to her aid. He forgot about himself He forgot about his age. He forgot about the danger. He didn't count the cost. He just knew that his precious wife was in danger and he ran. And so furious was his defence of her that this much younger home invader fled empty-handed. Tail between his legs. You feel like cheering after reading the report. And that's love. It'll turn an 80-year-old man into a relentless, aggressive defender of his wife. It is fierce. It is unquenchable. It is as strong as death. In many ways, it's exactly this power to love that we've had all those reasons about don't rush it, to handle it carefully. It's powerful stuff. Here, though, it's not so much a warning. It's a positive thing, this. Verse 7, if one were to give all the wealth of his house for love... It would be utterly scorned. See, love is beyond price. It's almost too beautiful. It's almost too precious. It's almost too powerful for words to describe. In fact, that's why it should be reserved for that exclusive, sealed relationship. To seal over your heart, it's as strong as death. But if that's not enough, there's one other final, very important thing about love that Song of Songs wants us to know. You see it again in verse 6, this time right at the very end of the verse. It, love, burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Now that last phrase, like a mighty flame, that phrase can also be translated like the very flame of the Lord. If you've got an NIV, that might even be mentioned in the footnotes. If you've got an ESV, it actually has it as the verse itself, like the very flame of the Lord. The actual word used is a shortened form of Yahweh, the personal name of God in the Old Testament. It could be used to indicate a mighty flame, but given that there's words like jealousy and fire close by, which are also closely linked with Yahweh in the Old Testament, I'm thinking the ESV is probably right, and verse 6 would be a good read as, love is the very flame of Yahweh, which is an extraordinary thought, because it's saying that love actually has something of God himself in it, that this Beautiful, powerful, exhilarating connection that you and I can have with another person. It's actually a connection, it's actually an experience which gives us a taste of what God himself is like. It's extraordinary. Now the New Testament uh, progresses the idea even further because in 1 John it declares quite simply, not simply that love is the very flame of the Lord, but that God is love. Very interesting wording. It doesn't say God is loving. God is love. In other words, there's something about love that's the very essence of God. 
that this connection that we can enjoy, that, that love is somehow also the defining thing, the most fundamental thing about God that you and I can know. It's extraordinary. And I mean, this side of the cross, maybe it's not all that surprising to us. I mean, even just in terms of the things we've just been chatting about, about God, about love being a seal over our heart and love being as strong as death. Isn't that exactly how God has treated us through Jesus Christ? Through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, God has irreversibly sealed you on his heart. He has utterly bound himself to your best interests. He has acted towards you with an unquenchable, unshakable, undying love so great that he did not even withhold his own son. We've thought about that a few times throughout this series, haven't we? Friends, love is the flame of Yahweh. Love is is sort of the essence of exactly who God is. It, It describes precisely how he has treated us. And because of that, it also describes precisely what he has in store for us. See, right at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, the Apostle John gets a glimpse into what the new creation is going to be like. Uh, God gives him a vision about what life will be like for us, for God's people, what it's going to be like after Jesus has returned and justice is established and evil has been removed. And John sees us. He sees you and I as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And he hears a loud voice saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now friends, that picture, that image of a bride and her husband and everything being good, That's a deliberately emotional picture. That is a deliberately love-saturated image. Because it's pointing us forward to a time when we will have a much deeper and richer experience of God than ever before. And because love is the flame of Yahweh, it's pointing us forward to a time when we will have a deeper, richer experience of love than ever before. You and I are looking forward to a time when we will experience love in such a way that it will surpass even what the Song of Songs has been describing for us over these past few weeks. Which in one sense is pretty hard to understand. I mean, I find it hard to understand because I can't actually imagine exactly how that's going to work. According to Jesus, there will be no more sex or marriage in the new creation, at least as we know it now. I don't fully get that. Uh, And admittedly, I'm not fully comfortable with it. Sue will be there, but I want to be married to her. I can't imagine not being married to her. I don't want to not be married to Sue. But Jesus assures us that it will all be replaced with somehow an even greater experience of love. Now, the time Sue and I have actually chatted about this, we're, we're wondering if it'll be a bit like when we first had children. 
See, Sue and I were married uh, for quite a few years before we had kids. That was a very conscious decision. Uh, We loved there just being the two of us. Uh, We almost didn't want anyone else. We didn't feel the need for anyone else. And we really only started to have kids because we thought, you know, the old biological clock's starting to tick away. If we're going to have any, we better start now. But friends, as I verbalise that, I actually find that quite embarrassing to admit. It's bizarre now uh, that, I didn't, that we didn't want kids because now we, we love our kids more than we could possibly have imagined. And if you're a parent, you know what I mean. I just love being with them so much. I, I love having them in my life so much. Last week, Olivia got a peas. I was even a little sad that the lessons in the car are now over. Those 120 plus hours, I love that time together. That was pre- I, I really enjoyed that time. Thankfully, Olivia said, if I get too sad, she'll just keep driving me around the place. <laughs> My point, though, is I used to find it so hard to imagine what it would be like having kids. Now I can't imagine life without them. And soon I wonder if our experience of love may be like that in the new creation. Can't imagine now what that's going to be like. Can't imagine that how it could be better. But when it comes, we'll wonder how we ever live without it. And my aim is to encourage you with that, friends. Especially to those of you who have found this series in Song of Songs tough going. Because I know that as the song has shown us the passion and the pleasure and the arousal that comes from being in love and making love, uh, for some of you, it's been like rubbing salt into a wound. Because you don't feel as if you've got what the song is describing. Be encouraged. A day is coming when everything that is painful about love in this world, a day is coming when it will be gone. And if you are hurting from being single, a day is coming when your loneliness will be gone and you will be comforted. And if you feel trapped in a hard marriage, a day is coming when the heartache will be over and you will be comforted. And if death has torn your lover away from you, a day is coming where there will be no more mourning or crying and God himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. And even if you are enjoying the passion of being in love here and now, a day is coming when even your present joy will be surpassed. Because, friends, a day is coming when the dwelling of God will be with us and he will live with us and we will know love. We will know love that will be deeper and richer and more exhilarating than this book has even been able to describe for us. We will know love deeper and more exhilarating than you ever thought possible. And it will never, ever, ever end. For love is the very flame of Yahweh. And he is coming for his bride. I'll pray. Father, thank you that you are love. 
And thank you that we can look forward to a day when we will experience you more fully than we can now. A time when we will be lavished in love in a way that we can't even imagine now. Father, thank you for the gift of love again. Thank you for its power, for its passion, for its exhilaration. Uh, Help us to enjoy it and treat it carefully here. But Father, thank you for the promise that a time is coming when we will know you and therefore we will know love even more than we can imagine now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.